Hello there, listener, and welcome back to another episode of the Cloak and Dagger podcast. You are listening to your host, Will Davis Coleman, and as ever, I am joined by my co-host, Patrick Courtney. Hello, Will. How are you? Not bad, Patch. How are you? How are things? I'm good. I realise, I think I weirdly strike a posh tone when I start this um, podcast. Like, I just, I think, uh, maybe it's just, I mean, I am Southern, but, you know, I've grown, I've lived in the North for so long. I just speak, you know, oh, hello, how are you doing? Which, you know, that's <laughs> not really how I talk that much, but especially at the beginning, it just feels like you should be formal or something. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. I do feel like I've got a podcast voice too, and it, it does kind of sound more enunciated like every syllable you can kind of hear yeah yeah it's very it's very radio speak it's very which is you know unnecessary because we have you know fancy modern mics that you don't yeah. need to really be eloquent and really pronounce every single syllable of a word you can just speak however you want and they you know listeners can hear it's fine <laughs> it's fine i know but there is that sort of thing of like hello there welcome back to bbc news at 10 you almost feel like you're about to read out the the news and therefore you have to fill on like the Queen, not the Queen's English, but you know, like something. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you, but I very much grew up, you know, hearing Radio 4 in the morning just because my dad was playing it or my mum was playing it. And you just hear <laughs> that kind of tone in your voice. Um, and yeah, as soon as there's a mic in front of me, I now think I have to do the same thing, which is <laughs> yeah. kind of weird. But it's only yeah. at the beginning, though. I think once we get into it, it's fine. But I um, kind of forget that you're actually podcasting. We're just having a chat, which is yeah, what it should yeah, be yeah. about anyway. Yeah, that's basically what it is. We just want to talk to each other about history. Yeah. Well, I'm really excited to get this one going. It's going to be a good one. So let's do it. So this week, uh, we're going to be in the same part of the world as we were for our special episode on JFK last week, uh, North America. Yeah. So uh, haven't gone too far, but we have traveled back in time. So our Moved story temporally, not spatially. Exactly, yeah. The Time Lords are proud of us. Cool. Um, so our period for this this drama, this this murder, um, spans quite a long period of time. I don't mean that they drew out the murder for hundreds of years. Um, <laughs> One <laughs> killing last ten years. In order to tell the story, I have to take us back to around the 1760s which is the last few, that's the last decade and a half before the American Revolution. And so still Britain's America, still the colonies. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And then the actual murder itself happens in 1835. So I'm I'm passing through quite a few years. Uh, well, wow, so but just the beginning of America, really. Yeah, exactly. It's in that first mm. sort of century of um, a new state which is trying to find its, find its feet um, by basically crushing another state's feet which is very fitting for what i'm about to talk to you guys about anyway yeah so today as you've probably already guessed i will be talking to you guys more about the native american history of the u.s rather than or in conflict with the white u.s that kind of came over um so it's the clash of two very very different cultures which is like which it all wraps up itself up into one assassination which sparks an entire war so wow. what we're going to do is we're going to go to the murder first and then I'm going to sort of take us back in time a bit further back. <laughs> okay. So unlike normal where I no- we normally go for the other way around. So mm. it's a cold December night <laughs> on the 28th Ooh. of December. Well, I like this. We don't normally do this. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a cold December night in December in 1835. And... A, a white man 
has agreed to meet a Native American chief outside Fort King in sort of middle Florida, in the center of the state of Florida. Okay. Now, these two men did know each other very, very well. And knew each o- they knew each other so well that the, uh, the white man had actually gifted the Native American man a very expensive rifle, like a hunting rifle, as a sign of respect. Wow. As okay. he walked, yeah, as he walked out of Fort King, the white guy, the white man, I give the white guy, the white man looks over and he already knows that something is wrong. And suddenly there's a flash of light from in front of him. And instead of meeting the man he thought he was meeting, all he could see was this rifle, which he had gifted to his supposed, in air quotations, friend. And then suddenly all went black and he'd been shot. Wow, by the Dead. by the rifle that he gave. Yes, by the rifle he gave and shot by the man he gave it to. And this Jeez. was actually the very first strike of the Second Seminole War, which was a big war, which I will go into. Um, okay, and this, wow. And a little, yeah, so it's kind of, sorry for the dramatic start, it's just how I thought to do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is a story of betrayal, but it's kind of like the, the story of betrayal is kind of mirrored by the much bigger betrayal of the white Americans against the Native Americans on a larger scale. So it's like a yeah, it wasn't, that. it didn't come out of nowhere. It wasn't go. It was it, it was always leading to some sort of confrontation, and this was just the spark, the 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 straw that broke the camel's back, as opposed to just an out of the blue act of aggression. Absolutely, yeah. So first of all, let's quickly talk about the man who has just been shot. This man's the name, white man. <laughs> yes, the white man. This man's name was Wiley Thompson. And Wiley Thompson. Wiley Thompson. Yeah, Wiley Thompson was an Indian agent. Now that's not sort of like a double O or anything like that. He was in charge of, he was sent down by the US government to basically convince and shivy all of the Native Americans in Florida, who were known as the Seminoles, which I'll come back to, um, all the way out of the territory, all the way to Arkansas, which was actually not really a state yet, it was just a territory, um, where they were given like a plantation to live on. And So they were being moved along, they were being yeah, relocated to suit the, the needs of these white colonists. Yeah, moved along um, is a bit like saying that the Nazis moved along the Jews to the concentration camps. They were, yeah, they yeah. were forcibly being evicted from their native homeland. Um, yeah, yeah, it wasn't. They weren't convinced that... or persuaded. They were persuaded at the end of a of a gun of a rifle, not so much in a in a trade or anything like that. Absolutely, yeah. Now, um, this Indian agent Wiley Thompson was very good at his job, and actually, um, down in Florida, there were I think eight eight different war chiefs from the different Seminole tribes, and he'd managed to befriend one of them, namely a man named Osceola. Now, mm-hmm. Osceola was sort of like, oh, I don't know, I guess you could describe him as sort of the Fidel Castro. He was like the very top man of the Seminoles. And um, and Wiley Thompson thought by being friends with him, he would be able to convince, if he could convince Osceola, then the whole settlement would move, right? Right. So he wasn't just the just a chief. He was a sort of chief among chiefs. He was a respected man 
within presumably multiple smaller tribes within the Seminary? Or... Well, this is the thing. I think from from learning about their culture through obviously researching for this podcast, um, once you have all these chiefs, so you've got eight chiefs, but I think it then comes down to personality. So he was a commanding figure. He was quite tall and he mm. was very warlike. So there was lots of... He was a charismatic man. In fact, every man who seems to have met Osceola seemed to like him and want to befriend him. So he's clearly a personable, charismatic chief um, in his absolute prime as well. So he's like... It's perfect. He's he's the right guy. And and Wiley Thompson, who was obviously he was a veteran at doing this sort of work, and he was a he was a uh, a soldier as well beforehand. He knew he knew that Osceola was the man he had to win over. And his mistake though was underestimating a Native American man, which I'm sure he was not the first white man to underestimate someone who was not white which probably happened mm, a mm, lot. Mm. Probably still does happen. Um, and and De- his definitely mistake... Definitely still happens, yeah. Yeah, so his mistake was that Osceola was actually doing the the opposite. He was kind of wanting to get as much information about, you know, troop movements and, like, how strong are the US government and how much do they want them to move. So, um, oh, okay. so Wiley Thompson thought he was being sort of swept up in this sort of weird bromance when in fact Osceola had no interest in Wiley Thompson or at least that's what Osceola yeah was actually the the smarter party and this was actually getting more out of Wiley than Wiley thought he was getting out of Osceola that's really interesting yeah it is really a case of underestimating someone of you who of someone of perceived lower intelligence and it is like a sort of root very deep-seated racist idea that uh, the white man and these people coming over are intellectually just in every way superior and therefore couldn't be taken in or hoodwinked by someone like this um which leaves them being leaves them completely open to being hoodwinked because they just won't be expecting it and they're not putting up their guards and they might think oh i can speak very freely in front of this man he won't really understand what i'm saying i can you know talk about you know the many marvelous things my military are doing in all our very strategic movements and completely give the game away just because uh, you don't really realise the person you're dealing with is a force to be reckoned with, not just within their own communities, but, you know, in contrast to yourself. So, yeah. not that Wiley. Yeah. And and this is the thing, <laughs> Wiley, um, even with the gift of the American rifle, the hunting rifle, it comes across as this sort of blind arrogance that they won't really know maybe how to use it, or if they did, they'd think it's the most amazing thing that ever mm. happened. And, he, mm. and, and it's very interesting that Osceola chooses to symbolically ritualistically almost assassinate this man to show what a mistake he'd made now yeah osceola is a man of really great intelligence natural intelligence and his choice of timing this is happening on the 28th of december now i don't know about you listener but on the 28th of december in modern times especially in (laughs) a christian community you have a three-day sort of layover over christmas you know, and it would have been the same back then, where very little yeah. is getting done past December 25th before January 3rd, probably, mm. sort of thing. So it's a very good time, because the thing is, especially back then, before central heating, you don't have armies marching on the move particularly. So Everyone's it's stationary a good time at that point. for a, yeah. an attack, really, because, you know, if you're going to do it, you're going to do it in these weird conditions. And it, so just to explain, Fort King, as I say, was in the heart of... of um, of florida and that is where the Seminoles are from that's where their heartland is which they know the terrain very well mm-hmm. so 
any sort of and you got very short days of course december 28th very late into winter midwinter is just past so it means that you've got lots of darkness unfamiliar terrain to the white man and suddenly the person who you thought was your closest ally within the seminoli tribes has suddenly become your biggest problem it's the perfect time i think because we also know that this was coordinated because Osceola had spoken to the other chiefs and on the very same day, actually a little later at night, before this news would have spread, 101 there was a column of 101 US soldiers that were being led by a man named Major Dade um, who mm-hmm. were ambushed by Seminoles and utterly destroyed almost to a man. Two Americans got away. That wow. was it. Two white, two white Americans. Yeah. From, a, so, from an ambush, from a, from a strike while they were marching. Complete ambush. Yeah, complete ambush. Oh, my God. So, yeah. So the, and sorry, did you say that happened after um, Wiley was shot? or so it's It ju- happened so, the so, same day, same day. So oh, say, oh, yeah, so same day so, and, and just after. So the, the shooting of Wiley was the thing that kicked it off. But yeah. it, was, it was followed up by a, a, by a massacre. And the thing is that um, 101 maybe not sound that many, but we're talking, this isn't like a grandstand war. This isn't like um, the murder of uh, Franz Ferdinand and suddenly you have a million conscripts. We're mm, talking about mm. small amounts of men. This is guerrilla warfare, people. This is the mm. podcast episode about guerrilla warfare. <laughs> really. Yes. Um, so okay. um, let's, let, let me just sort of backtrack now, now that I've told you a little bit about the, the murder. Um, mm. The... The Seminoles, I think, was where we should start, or at least talk about now, because they're a really fascinating people. So Seminole actually isn't a, a, a Native American word. It was actually a Spanish word, which was then sort of mixed up with a little bit of Muscogee Creek language. And it actually okay. comes from the word Cimarron. And Cimarron in Spanish means the wild ones. Wow. Okay. So it's kind of their description of these people. Yeah, so the Spanish were um, in charge of Florida. They'd actually got it back after the War of Independence had finished uh, against the British because they got it back in the treaty, as part of the treaty. So they own Florida, and they're the ones who first deal with the Seminoles. So uh, the Seminoles were this incredible hodgepodge of various Native American peoples, mainly from the Creek territories, which is in sort of modern-day Alabama and Georgia. So you're talking okay. sort of deep South America, um, and these peoples had been there. They were actually the descendants of the native, the ancient Native American tribes, which specifically the Mississippian peoples, who were wow. akin to sort of like the Romans of the Native American backstory. Really? So these sort of this old glory days kind of thing? Yeah. They had fully fledged oh. cities. And they actually had a massive capital called Cahokia, which is in modern-day Missouri near um, St. Louis, literally actually opposite the city of St. Louis on the other river. Wow. So they've got this... I mean, it's so weird to think... I mean, we we very, uh, you know, old-world or Western-world-centric view of, you know, history not starting in North America until we sailed over there. But they are... Wow. So they have this grand backstory and history, and they have their own kind of ancient roman empire and so yeah, these culture, guys are descendant yeah. of him and do they kind of like see themselves as the spiritual successor to these to this great people as well yeah absolutely but just like every other native south american and north american civilization it was all wiped out by a little thing called influenza 
which was brought over by, you guessed it, the Europeans. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, namely, actually, the Spanish in this case. But they literally mm. wiped out, especially Florida. Florida was almost deserted at the point where we start our story because all of God, the original is... tribes were dead from disease. Oh, it's so horrific. I mean, there's so much. I mean, you know, the things that, you know, uh, European colonized when they went to North America and South America as well, what they did there and the destruction and the massacres they caused is bad, but it all kind of pales in comparison to the the plagues we brought over, influenza and others. You know, it, it, it's just so destructive. Yeah, it really is. So um, the Seminoles, as I said, were from sort of an Alabama, Georgia area. And during the British occupation of their country over the sort of first hundred years so from like the 1660s to the 1760s where you have a real british colony um the thing that uh was happening around georgia and alabama is you guessed it slavery chattel slavery which means people in chains and especially african chattel slavery now Slavery was not uh, a new uh, thing in nat- to Native Americans. They they did have their own slave slave communities, but they had oh, really? never done it. It was never done on the pigmentation or tribe um, calculation. It was more done, as far as I can tell, on debt. So a bit like right. uh, if you're really in debt to the tribe, you then have to work as a slave for a year as a punishment sort it's of. It's a bit thing. like a indentured servitude, or almost like a it's almost like a prison sentence, which is exactly. ironically, yeah. ironically, you know, kind of like the the modern American slaves, which are prisoners. Yeah, um, exactly. It's a weird parallel yeah. with with modern day, yeah. So these, but this, um, so once chattel slavery had been noticed by the Creek peoples. Um, there was a lot of outrage when the Creek started doing it themselves from within the Creek community. The Creek community didn't approve of using chattel slavery, but quite a lot of the main chiefs saw how lucrative it was. So what happens is you get this great migration south in the 1760s, which goes south. If you go south from Alabama and Georgia, you hit Florida. And the reason Mm. they go south is because, A, there's no one there because they've been wiped out and the Spanish aren't really there anymore. Um, mm-hmm. And and B, because they, they're against slavery. They don't like that idea and they think it goes against what they believe. So literally thousands left and moved south to Florida. And these are these guys were from the Creek Society, but they were also joined by disaffected Choctaw and Cherokee, who are neighboring massive air, tribal areas, as well as a number of fleeing African slaves from those British colonies. So wow. suddenly so it's, you it's have almost a, a political a unification mixture. of it is. They, anti-slave. Yeah, it is. Well, it's not. That's not the only thing they all um, rely on. But they. Uh, th- that's a major a- a- element, and actually something that uh, will be very important later. Yeah, they they're very much mm. anti-slavery, which I think is really interesting. Um, and of course, all of these tribes, because it's such a hodgepodge, there is no sort of um, factionalism. It t- turns. It, they seem to have sort of intermingled and made their own sort of uh, culture, which is the Seminoles, the Seminole culture. Wow, so, so the proper, proper melting pot where they actually all blended together and actually became their own people, as opposed to remaining a sort of disparate groups of various factions all living in the same space. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And by 1775, they had sort of put their foot firmly on Florida and no one was taking it away. Now, just so some of you listeners be thinking, well, what about you know the US? Surely the US owned florida no 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 
They did not. And the Spanish who did own it, technically, had gone almost completely bankrupt by this point. So they didn't really control it. They had a few forts, but basically all of Florida was up for grabs. And the US is still too much of a fledgling nation. I mean, this is 1775. You haven't even had the revolution yet. So, um, you know, it was completely open and, and free land. Now, the other thing, if you haven't been down to Florida, or if anyone hasn't been to Florida, is it's very much, there's lots of swamps and mangroves, mm-hmm. and there's a whole area called the Everglades, which is in the, never eat, try to be, in the southwest corner of the state. And they become very important as well later in our story. Right. Um, but, but the main thing to remember is that they, it was a major uh, safe haven for fleeing slaves. So even after the end of the British and you have the American uh, revolution, the slavery didn't stop. There was just different white people doing it to the same black people. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, what, whilst sort of the northern states of America might be more associated with fleeing African slaves, the original place to run was actually Seminole, Florida, and made a lot more sense to go there because geographically, trying to get up to somewhere like Maine or New Hampshire is a lot further away than going south to Florida, especially if if you're first wave African slaves. You want to get back to Africa or maybe just further away from the US. You'd want to go down to Florida because you can get off the island. Or off the you continent. almost want to, you want to escape the white man. You want to escape white European colonists. And there's this sort of haven in Florida to escape to made up of yeah. escape slaves and Native Americans. That but, is so cool. I don't do you want to know what makes this? it even cooler? The, yeah. What happens is um, the black slaves, the freed black slaves, ha- um, start making their own little settlements uh, with Seminole approval. All they had to do was pay annual tribute to the chiefs and make mm-hmm. war when the Seminoles went to war. They had to fight with them, basically. Um, so, But they were left alone, basically. And those yeah. African-Americans also... Well, they weren't even African-Americans, sorry. They were just black slaves, probably Africans. They had Christianity mixed in with the animism which is what um the native americans believed in and also um they intermingled with the with the seminole so you had these black seminole christian animist um populations who were trying to help other black africans escape from you know from servitude all the way up oh in the north God. to bring them down how to florida how cool do is we that? not know more about this this is such an interesting group of people coming together at such an important time in history, world history, not just American history, but it's all happening, you know, a couple states south of where, you know, New York and Boston and Hamilton's getting up to, you know, his stuff. You know, we know all about this stuff, about the American Revolution. We learn so much about this. And yet there's this crazy place in Florida with all these different groups coming together. That's so cool and interesting. And yeah, interesting Isn't that it? also the Native Americans were so open just to allowing you know the the black uh, escaped slaves just to build their own communities it sounds like they almost create a, a you know they just feudal system of you know paying tribute and then fighting for them which is basically the the, the bedrock of just a feudal society and so they just created yeah. their own little society and so it became their own people yeah. wow yeah so cool um mm. the thing yeah so so this is all going really really well um and you probably can tell by my voice it's not going to end as well as it's going right well, now. well none of our stories end particularly well do they <laughs> no they don't do they okay so this this sort of picture perfect uh or not picture perfect obviously but this sort of haven um mm. was all going so well but there were two 
major problems. They make two big mistakes, if you like, in terms of their survival. I'm not saying that they made them... I'm not saying that it's wrong to make these choices, but uh, these choices led to some pretty damn bad things for them. Um, the first thing to happen... So that they by 1775, they're sort of settled, right? Mm-hmm. By So they're okay. They have like this heyday for about 25 to 30 years where that's how everything's going. And they actually started... Some of the black Seminole tribes, African Seminole tribes, are actually raiding north into the expanding... US America they're and raiding are freeing slaves yeah they're, oh, they're raiding see. Right, to right. get the black people out to come south wow. because they've had their lands they've had to move you know they although mm. they've left because of the creek they probably blamed the white man originally because they showed african chattel slavery to their chiefs back in their own native america their native lands their original homelands which then mm. led to them migrating south so they're probably quite bitter you know, I would. Yes. Yeah. Um, now, um, the very first thing that went wrong uh, was that during the War of 1812, which was fought between Britain and the US and was actually kind of won by Britain. It's a bit of a a bit of a sort of both kind of one. But uh, this is the war where Britain actually burnt down the original White House. Um, the Seminoles supported the British. Now... Okay. I don't know why. I mean, I think I understand why. It's simply because they probably were offered a lot of money or material resources. But whatever the Mm. reason, by siding with Britain, they uh, really piss off the US government. So they're already on the radar of the US government because they sided on the wrong side of this, uh, this thing. And then the following year is the major, this is the second big mistake which was after the Red Stick Rebellion, which was this big, um, well, big rebellion, obviously, Hmm. um, uprising, which was meant to actually coincide with a northern alliance of um, uprising in the north, the Native Americans in the north. um, They spoke to their cousins in the south, so it was meant to be a coordinated Hmm. strike, north-south, and the southern one was called the Red Stick Rebellion, which was happening in those creek lands which they had left, the Seminoles had left. And they... um, Unfortunately, it was basically like a massive uprising, which was then put down in Alabama by Andrew Jackson. And Andrew Jackson goes on to become president. Oh, he's not president at this time. Yes, he's He's not. He's a major general at this point. Wow. Because he's the, I mean, he's what people say is probably the worst president ever. Certainly the bloodiest because of his, uh, his, his, you know, eternally long uh, war against... Uh, and destruction of uh, the indigenous people. Oh, wow! So well, this you've is, got this yeah, guy the fact rising. that he's in this story is probably foreboding. Um, what's happening later? But yes, yeah, so Andrew Jackson gets sent down, and I, I don't know if this is his first attack on Native Americans, but it certainly isn't his last, um, mm. because he puts down the Red State Rebellion hard. And he was actually whether I mean love him or hate him, and most people probably hate him, um, <laughs> including myself. Um, he was a very good general. He knew what he was doing yes. and he knew how to play dirty as well. He was a very, you know, he didn't have many morals against the enemy. Um, he was effective. So what happened is, yeah, so what happens is lots of red sticks, as they called themselves, uh, fled after the war ended. Uh, they fled to, to Florida because they obviously knew that all of their sort of distant cousins 30 mm. years ago had set mm. up that they would have known all about it. And what yeah. did the Seminoles do? They greeted them with open arms which makes sense because they're a warrior people. But at the same time, that gives 
the U.S. a sort of um, pr- the sort of uh, what the excuse they needed to then invade, you know, harboring you know, like a, uh, war criminals essentially. You know that you they've suddenly allied themselves with direct combatants to the United States, and well, they wouldn't know at the time, but unfortunately, allied themselves with a people who were fighting against the soon-to-be president of the United States. So, yeah, exactly. Although, and, to be honest, um, it doesn't sound like... I mean, if Andrew Jackson's going to become president, it's not like they're just going to ignore this you know, peaceful haven of uh, escaped slaves and Native Americans down south. I can't imagine they were really ever going to be in with a shot of having peaceful relations with the United States. Well, I don't know. I feel like... If they had any sort of forethought, they would have tried to somehow integrate them within as a territory somehow. I don't know. I don't know. I Or maybe the Seminoles would never have gone for that. But regardless of that, actually, yeah. what happens, sorry, just to finish the Red State Rebellion, is um, the Creek peoples basically lose 21 million acres of land. 21 million Fuck. acres. That's a lot. And this is right at the point where you've, you're starting to get proper Western expansion. So they're carving up great swathes of, the, uh, of, the, of those grasslands to the mm, West. Mm. Um, and actually the Spanish are also um, starting to relinquish power because they own basically everything sort of, if you take out the Midwest, they, they owned everything to the West of that. So they had New Mexico, Texas, California. Mm, mm. They had all of that. And then in the middle, you had the, like, the Louisiana little sort of corridor, which was owned by um, by the French. And there was a thing yes. called the Louisiana Purchase, which I'm yep, sure you've heard yep. of. Um, and so they've, that's already happened. So, you know, you've, you're getting, you can see where the government, the expansionist US government is just expanding and expanding and expanding, right? And to make matters worse for the Seminoles, the problem is, is that, they've got a constant harboring of fleeing slaves from wealthy plantation owners and those wealthy plantation owners are becoming senators and the senators mm, mm. are constantly there's a lot of resentment and warmongering going on up in washington to sort well, I, out the unruly south yeah i imagine i mean because even if it's not so much they want you know they don't necessarily want revenge against the seminary but just this you know, faction down here just gives such a... It's a path for escaped slaves to go to. If they can get rid of that, you know, slaves will be thinking, well, even if we do escape, there's nowhere we can go. You know, we're bounded on all sides. But so long as there exists this place where if they can escape to, and as of yet, they would be safe there, they could think, uh, you know, they could think that that could be a place they could build a life and live, you know, the rest of their life in peace. It obviously doesn't become yeah. that, but yeah, you can see why uh, the the senators in America would be thinking it's it's not it, you know they'll be losing money because of this because of exactly. this group because of this this place this this unusual place. Um, but so all of this, all of these sort of sort of mistakes, if you like, um, which is easy to say with hindsight, obviously, leads mm. to war, the first of three Seminole wars. Um, they're called the Seminole Wars, as in between the U.S. and the Seminole people in the South. And mm-hmm. um, the thing I should just point out right now is that the Seminoles are the only Native American tribe to never, ever recognize the United States of America. Wow. So they never did, because ever. I guess that's that was a big part of, you know, the the destruction of 
Native American people is that they did deals, they set up negotiations, and they and you know they they signed treaties with the United States. The Seminole never did that. They never recognized these people as being a legitimate uh, claim on their land on what they considered. No, never. I guess that, that's such and, a show of strength. I mean, they must have been so sure of themselves because I imagine you know most Native Americans wouldn't in truth consider these white colonists to be rightful owners of what is their land but they had to you know they had to appease the united states because they weren't strong enough is that is because it just sounds yeah. like that's quite a that's quite a clear uh, indication of the strength they had in the fact that they didn't have to appease or they didn't feel that they had to appease these white colonists exactly yeah mm. so the person who sort of um sort of highlights all of this is obviously this man who I mentioned earlier, Osceola, Chief Osceola. Now, just a little bit of background on him. He was actually born up in Alabama in a place called Tallahassee. And this was in 1804. So just at the sort of part where you get in the golden age, the end of the golden age of the Seminole. And he moves okay. south. And he was actually, so his he was actually originally named Billy Powell, which I think is really funny somehow. Billy Powell? Yeah, he was... He was born Billy Powell, and the reason for this is his mum was from a Muscogee tribe, which is a Native American tribe, and but his father was a Scottish trader, and uh, called uh, oh wow, I think it was uh, James Powell, and so he named his uh, his son. <laughs> no, so, no, sorry, his name was Willie. Sorry, no, his parents were it was William Powell, so he names his son after him, calls him Billy. <laughs> It must have been I mean, so funny, or not funny. That's such, a, that's such a weird thing that this this great tribal uh, chieftain of the Seminole is called Billy Powell. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, he, I, know. I really wish he went by that name. That'd be really funny. Yeah, Billy Powell. Billy Powell. Billy. <laughs> it's 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 very um <laughs> Billy Elliot. <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, so but quite quickly. Well, I don't know at what point he received the name Osceola, but um, I think he would have wanted it pretty quickly. I can imagine going on Depole and getting it changed. Um, but it his wouldn't name, really... Um, I is, can't imagine he'd get that much respect with the name Billy Powell among other uh, Native American uh, le- tribal leaders and chieftains. Yeah, exactly. Um, so his name his name is actually mispronounced. So Osceola is how we have anglicised it, but his actual um, Native American name is Asiyahola which has okay. now become Osceola somehow. Um, and that actually means black drink shout, which I don't know <laughs> quite why. Huh. Black but, um, drink shout. The bla- a black drink. The black drink is um, a ritualistic. Um, they use the black drink in lots of rituals and shaman stuff. So I um, I don't quite know why those two things go together, but he is known as Asiyahola, so Osceola to us. Um, and he... Um, he embodied the resistance against uh, the native, uh, against the Americans, the white Americans coming south, and he uh, fought in every war going. He was never going to let the whites win, basically, uh, because wow. the thing is about uh, U.S. is that by 1819, so by the time that Osceola is 15 years old, the Adams Onis Treaty has been signed, and that basically the u.s got florida and spain got five million dollars which obviously back then was a lot more than it is today but and still Sp- so spain had sold this uh, this stretch of land which this they wasteland. didn't really control anymore they didn't use any for and is full of um a, a tribe of people who are willing to fight off anyone who wants to take their land wow spain did a got a great deal out of that i guess you know legally on the world stage 
Spain still owns it, so America has to buy it unless they want to go to war with Spain. Which That's such a weird a headache. thing. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Even though Spain's like, we don't. I mean, we don't really control it. Like, it's te- it's technically ours. It's yeah. ours in name only. And so now it's. Uh, I guess that's the thing. The United States want to make sure they can see themselves as in name owning Florida, if not, yeah, you know, quite. Um, in, but also, in it gives the the Americans an excuse to then. Well, not an excuse. They literally own the land, so they can then evict whoever they want off it. Um, so what happens is this happens during the first Seminole War and the end of that war, um, the Seminoles actually sign a treaty known as the Moultrie Creek Treaty in 1823, mm. uh, which reduces their territory to the swampland in the very heart of Florida. So basically all the coastline has now, they're, they're landlocked into Florida because the coastline so is still economically viable for the US. Okay. Government. So they signed this treaty um, uh, because they've lost the war? They, they lost they, a they, war, they, yeah. yes. But the thing is that what's interesting is the first and second, and actually all three Seminole Wars, um, come down to guerrilla warfare. But the guerrilla warfare only really works in the heart of Florida because of the impenetrable terrain, because that's the swampiest part. Yeah, yeah. A huge so, part of guerrilla warfare is using the terrain against your enemy. And if you're, if the terrain is actually quite easy to trek across, that's where it lends itself to more standard warfare tactics. You need it to be in difficult scenarios um, in, in order for it to work yeah. properly. I'm just thinking, you know, uh, the mountainous regions in feudal Japan or perhaps the, the slightly mountainous regions of Scotland. Um, you know, it's in yeah. these sorts of places where you can win battles against much larger foes um by using the terrain to your advantage but if the terrain's not bad and is actually easy to use it's it's the bigger forces that will win yeah now andrew jackson was the man who was sent south in that first seminole war to deal with the seminoles and in so doing he was he ran roughshod over the spanish because at the time they hadn't actually sold it yet to to the u.s um and mm-hmm. so he actually just placed his troops everywhere and actually managed to kill a few Spanish um, collaborators and a couple of British as well. Um, on one occasion, um, two oh, sorry, two Seminole chiefs were were caught up in a ruse made by Andrew Jackson to come aboard a British merchant ship to get supplies, which was literally what they were actually trying to do. Um, and it was actually a ruse, and the Americans made them um, just shot them literally shot them off the side of the of the Bloody ship hell. and then so the, executed and then executed the two british merchantmen too which really oh. pissed off the uk yeah, yeah well not surprising so, like, so britain was trying to support this tribe i mean probably not for well, any moral reasons yeah. but just as a kind of f you to the to to the states because they pissed off that they've lost their colonies yeah exactly um mm. so that that's what happened in the first war and then what happens is that um then Osceola, um, sorry, so then Andrew Jackson then goes back north and eventually in 1830 becomes the US president and enacts a whole raft of reforms to get rid of Native Americans from anywhere to the east of the Mississippi. And this is what starts uh, the Trail of Tears. Have you heard of the Trail oh of Tears? Oh, God, you, yeah. Which is where they basically, lots of Native Americans died and perished on the walk that they were meant to do all the way out to these territories which they'd never lived in and they were mm. actually put in together like a big hodgepodge because they just they didn't understand how you know there were centuries of it's like putting together sort of the british though the english and the french halfway through the hundred years war 
you know yeah just put them yeah. all together just like that it's just so like terrible um but part of that was to get rid of all the seminoles but the seminoles told said fuck off said get out we're not going to do that so what happens they send down indian agents to bribe people to go $800 for a man, $450 for a woman to relocate to Arkansas. Wow. So they didn't okay. want... Okay. Because they realized after the first Seminole War that they'd lost a fair amount of men going down there. They're a tough nut mm. to crack. So instead, let's yeah. bribe them. And it, it did work a little bit, but not really. It was still like kind of shunned, which is obviously a, quite a good thing for Osceola. And Osceola kind of was the the sticking force it seems he held everything together and he was really personable um so then you get the beginning of the second seminary war after these indian agents had come down and tried and this is when the first shot fired was by osceola killing his friend wiley thompson and then all right. hell breaks loose so because so suddenly you've so got to panic yeah because so wiley thompson is this kind of embodiment of the the trail of tears of the of the United States forcibly moving moving his entire people um, across the country because they didn't want them there. Ah, I like the way you've yeah. told this. I like the fact that we you know we heard this uh, betrayal and this uh, this breaking of trust, but actually, and when it comes down to it, you totally understand. Yeah, like it's a it, fascinating like, way around. Like like the Indian agents are just such a horrible thing. I mean, just being paid off to leave your land and just go somewhere else. It's not like they're being relocated to a new location that the, the you know the United States government has made ready for them. It's just fuck off. We bought this land from people who don't even own it, and now you have to leave. It's yeah. just awful. Oh man. So. This second Seminole War start does go really well for the uh, for the Seminoles, and it took seven years for this war to really end um, because mainly of the terrain, but also because of the tactics they were using. They were experts in camouflage and subterfuge mm-hmm. and, and tactics like that, um, and the US just had no hope of trying to subjugate them, except for this bribery thing. So they actually managed to. Um, uh, towards the end of the Second Seminole War, they managed to convince 700 of the Seminole warriors to march to Fort Brooke, which was on the west coast, central west coast of Florida, to get taken to Arkansas because they'd had enough mm-hmm. of the war. And they so they go into Fort Brooke, and Fort Brooke is manned by about 200, no, less than 200, about 50 white US men, right? And mm. um, this is just amazing. Osceola then comes in at night with 200 of his best men and vanquishes the whole of the fort and convinces 700 men and well mainly men to come back and fight so he's can you imagine he's fighting a war he's fighting a war and 700 of his men mutiny or surrender Mm. and he goes right hold hold my hold my bag i'm going in mm. and then he goes in and then convinces them to all come back and return to the fighting so it goes on for longer wow, that's so amazing because so yeah cool. he sees them as not they're not traitors they're 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 leaving because they're scared because they think they'll lose and presumably uh you know the united states seemed like this impenetrable force you know they will just keep coming until they drive them away but he turns them yeah. around that's so amazing he's a real hero and a leader i guess he is but then things so how does this all end where am i coming to mm. so what yeah, happens yeah. is 
um, because Osceola's kind of the main character here, um, on the 21st of October, 1837, he is lured to a peace talk with the overall commander of the US forces at this point, who was a, a major general named Thomas Jessup at Fort Payton, which is on the east coast of Florida. And this is whilst the Second Seminole War is still going on. Um, and as soon as he turned up, he was arrested on site under a flag of truce. He was holding a white flag and he was arrested and thrown in prison. And then he was moved. He wasn't killed. He was moved mm. from place to place and always ever further north. So further away from his sphere of influence. Um, and the American press were furious with these underhand tactics. They even really? like, they even compared the, yeah, they compared the move to British colonial tactics against on US citizens less than a century earlier. So they said this I mean, is that, the most un American thing you could That's have done. what it sounds like. It sounds like the way they're treating uh these Seminole people is how we treated America when they were rebelling. I mean it's so weird that so soon after they win their uh, independence, they win their freedom. They are then involved in a conflict where they are playing the exact opposite role. But they are they they, they won their white freedom against a white oppressor. That's all that's it true. was. Uh, sorry, that they was don't see this as the same it, thing. They didn't see that. Yeah, this is not the same thing. And and yeah. so just to finish, Osceola uh, died of quinsy, which was brought on by a sort of a lingering malaria and tonsillitis. And and oh. he dies in a, a fort named Fort Moultrie, which is in South Carolina. And he was buried at the fort, but he was given full military honours. So he had... So he, he, he He was such a personable man. That mm. he, the fort commander said he was the best prisoner he'd ever had. He had six different men come and paint him, white men come and paint him. And he started friendships with like three of them. So he was wow. a man of great great personality they, you know he even would, even the white yeah. soldiers saw he was a great man and he was he there was almost a sort of yeah. warrior's respect between generals and he's buried there to this day so um but he he wasn't killed necessarily but he probably wasn't looked actually you know he was given full he was also given free reign of the fort he was like a prisoner but sort of in under house arrest sort of prisoner well, um, he sounds he, pretty i mean well i was gonna say he sounds pretty honorable but this all started with him shooting uh, the Indian agent, presumably vaguely under, uh, it's not technically under a white flag, but you know, without, you could argue he started that second war, uh, not unfairly, but you know, um, but they, uh, they, without no, but respect, he, he wanted, yeah, but he wanted, he was already being attacked. They were already kind of under underpinning. He 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 fired yeah. the first official shot, but you've got to remember who's writing that history. That's very true. The That's white very man true. is and writing the history. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm not. It's not like I'm on their side, but I'm just saying that you know, it's, it, it, it's interesting. But yeah, he, he isn't seen as a villain even by his enemies. They understand no. how, how great a man this is, and are probably belating the fact that they are pitted against him, and he's this sort and of unlike warrior other, yeah. and great man. And unlike other assassination, in fact, almost any other assassination we've ever come across, this is actually a story of. I actually like the assassin rather than the assassinated. Not that I've got nothing necessarily against Wiley Thompson, but I, I'm point, not saying yeah. he, I don't condone. I don't condone the death either. But um, I actually, I definitely side on the Osceola side of history as a, as a first shot to set off a, a rebellion um, to resist what is some of the worst parts of certainly American history. 
I think I do agree with it. I mean, it's not... I mean, you know, murder is, is kind of bad regardless, but in the face of what these indigenous tribes and escaped slaves were facing, you know, they need to fight back. They need to resist. And, and he did a but, great job of it. Yeah, and that resistance, right, that steely resistance that he put up, um, what do you call it, it inspired those in the next generation who fought in the Third Seminole War, where basically the Americans wanted to wipe out every Seminole out of um, out of Florida, every mm. single one. And at the time, there were only 300 of them, 300 of them left to have survived the Second War. And they were moved to the Everglades, which, as I said earlier, was this sort of swampy mm. area down on the southwest coast. Um, then, So then they are bribed after the Third Seminole War. Um, no, 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 after the Second. Uh, 200 of those 300 were bribed and did head west. But those last 100 remained and fought and fought and fought to the point where the US basically went, whatever, man and just forgot about them. And to this day, really? there are now 4,000 of them, the <sighs> Floridan Seminoles, who are still around and proud of their heritage. They're still there? Yeah, and 14,000 of them are up in Arkansas. They lost. Oh, sorry, as in America lost. The United States lost against this Native American tribe and yeah. to this day have not... I mean, I guess they are presumably... I don't quite know how it works, uh, but yeah, if you if you are a part of a, nat a Native American, um, what do they call them? The like the areas that Native Americans live in. Territories. Territories. There's oh, a word reservation. For reservation. Reservation. I assume it's now turned into a bit of a Native American reservation, or maybe they are just American citizens. Citizens. Just, so no, no, I guess no. So they got, they achieved recognition. Those hundred eventually achieve recognition with state wow. uh, with rights, which mean that they are still living on the land that their ancestors fought for so hard. Wow, fuck. You know, the story of the 300 Spartans against Persia, the 100 Seminole, you know, the, the you know, yeah. Spartans versus Persia, they all had the same weapons and, you know, it wasn't as big a thing. These are, you know, technologically inferior uh, fighters resisting against, well, who would go on to be the most powerful country in the world and they succeeded and are still around. Oh, wow. Yeah. I now really want to go to Florida. I've never been too intrigued to go to Florida. But, but now I really want to. I'd yeah. love to go to see that because that's so amazing. Do they have a lot of respect, I guess, nowadays for Osceola? Because they see oh, him as their, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, ancient yeah. ancestral quite leader. A few of them, quite a few of them have an Osceola surname. But I don't know if they're actually related because I've watched quite a few videos um, from current... Uh, members talking about their history continuing their oral history of but it's on video on youtube um so like i was just watching and loads of them called them their their surnames osceola but i'm it's wow. just yeah, might be just out of respect, respect i imagine yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 i think that's quite a common thing so yeah that that is our sto what? my my story for this week what a story that is so interesting i mean yeah. that's where we're getting the most benefit out of this you know more than anyone else and i'm hoping other people are getting it out as well about learning about these stories that you'd never learn about and like i imagine yeah. even if you were in the united states in florida you probably wouldn't learn about hopefully in the future uh, as we're dealing with that in the uk you know hoping to learn more about our past that puts us in a worse light but you know it's such an interesting story and even if i was american i'd want to know about it regardless of um you know it's probably my ancestors who were involved with it and 
you know, being British, our ancestors were probably involved in heinous things as well. But I want to know about them because it's such a fascinating part of history that I had no idea about. Wow. Well, well done. That was a brilliant. Really enjoyed that. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's fascinating. Well, yeah, that's it. So uh, uh, the close look this week will obviously be done by Patrick. Um, So, yeah, what are are you going to tell us this week? Uh, Well, because this was uh, a tale of a, as I said earlier, a technologically inferior uh, freedom fighters rebellion against a superior force, um, I wanted to look into a similar story, also featuring the United States, although a number of years later, and I'll be looking at the Viet Cong in the Vietnam War which is another very bloody time in American's history. So actually, you know, we, we said at the beginning of this series, you know, Americans, you know, you're in luck because we're talking about you a lot. So far, we haven't really shown you in the best light, to be honest, and when it's not going to get any better with this one. So we apologise for that. But, you know, we're very happy to talk about our dark history, and so hopefully this will teach you about your dark history as well. Looking forward to it. Let's do it. So yeah, so like I said, I have looked at for this week's Closer Look the Vietnam War, which if somehow you don't know what the Vietnam War is, which would be very surprising, um, it is uh, a war that took place between 1955 and 1975 in Vietnam between the North Vietnam government, who was communist at the time, um, and the South Vietnam government, who was resisting the North Vietnam's attempt to rule over all of Vietnam. But it was also a kind of Cold War era proxy war because it was kind of on the world stage because both sides were heavily supported um, by by huge allies around the world. Mainly in North Vietnam, they had their communist allies, um, predominantly the Soviet Union and China, whereas South uh, Vietnam was supported by the United States, who were trying to battle to make sure this one kind of key place in uh, Southeast Asia wouldn't fall to communist um, into the sphere of communism. That's what they were really worried about. So you had these huge global powerhouses acting in this very small very poor region of the world but it was kind of on the world stage um so as i said the war raged between uh, 1955 and 1975 but but i'm going to focus on is when the united states enter the war because they're not there from the beginning they are aiding and helping uh south vietnam fight the war from the beginning Mm. um but it was in 1965 they actually decide to send troops in they decide the only way they can ensure South Vietnam's victory is to send their own troops in um, and give proper support. So they enter the war in 1965, sending 100,000 troops with the plan of sending about another 100,000 the following year. So they're fully in this. They're really going into it. And so it's at this time, it's, um, I mean, if you listen to last week's episode, we talked about uh, JFK, um, who had, you know, done his bit to ramp up. America's involvement in the Vietnam War, but it was his successor, Lyndon B. Johnson, who sent these troops in. So that's kind of the the era we're in. And it's this, you know, Cold War fear that America has. And so that's why they're so eager to go in. But one of the other reasons they were so sure they needed to send, you know, their troops in is because of the one of the main groups that uh, South Vietnam's government were actually fighting at the time. And it wasn't just North Vietnamese military it was a group called the Viet Cong. And the Viet Cong are the military arm of what is officially called the National Liberation Front of South Vietnam, who 
who are these revolutionary communists of the of South Vietnam resisting against the uh, regime of the South Vietnamese government. So these soldiers, you know, they're from the actual place. They're from South Vietnam. They're not soldiers coming in really? from elsewhere. They are, yeah, they are resistance fighters resisting against the fairly repressive, repressive, oppressive regime um, of the South Vietnam's president, a man named Nodine Diem, and who did have quite a oppressive regime. And so these people were fighting against him. And so you could kind of see them either as, you know, freedom fighters or as tools of these communist uh, spheres of power. So, you know, it kind of depends on which way you look at them. But these guys were really effective. Um, and this is why the, the United States felt that they needed to send their troops in, because the South Vietnam uh, military was really struggling in this war against North Vietnam. And it was kind of largely due to these freedom fighters and these rebels who were just crippling them and just, just fighting with all the um, South Vietnam military forces while North Vietnam was able to expand its influence and really, like, you know, uh, get a stranglehold over the territory it did have whilst the South Vietnam was really struggling. Okay. So America decides to come in and they bring a hefty amount of firepower with them. You know, they are, at this time, you know, we were speaking just then, you know, about America being a fledgling power in the, you know, 1700s. By this time, the United States is the most powerful country in the world, arguably, between them and the Soviet Union, with probably either the or se or the, the second biggest, um, that's weird to say, with either the biggest or the second biggest military in the world. Okay. Um, so they are fully on the warpath and they are bringing huge amount of firepower to this to this small country which includes sort of airstrikes artillery strikes armed attack helicopters and even b-52 bombers Ooh. so they're bringing firepower and they kind of have a plan of a kind of shock and awe campaign to just use their massive superiority um, in terms of firepower and technology to just wipe out as much of this Viet Cong communist forces as they can in the kind of jungle and mountainous regions and then let the South Vietnam military forces move in and reassert their control over the populated areas. So it's the kind of America takes on the, the, the fighting forces, the bulk of the fighting forces, um, and then allows the South Vietnamese soldiers to move in and reclaim the land they they consider theirs. I see. Okay. Yeah. So it's a proper like bringing the big bully to beat the crap out of that person and then just come. Yeah. Afterwards. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and it's a kind of it. Yeah. It's this kind of plan to just wear them down. They uh, the the idea is that if they just keep attacking, keep you know killing scores and scores of these Viet Cong soldiers, eventually the communist side won't be able to replenish their soldiers and will have to sue for peace. It's Ugh. kind of a war of attrition is the plan, which is, of course, kind of a horrible way to think about war is you just keep killing people until eventually the side... I mean, that is kind of how all wars are fought. But in this one in particular, the plan was for it to go on for a long time, for this to be this huge, uh, massive wiping out of forces, which is kind of horrific when you think about it. Wasn't that sort of because they wanted to make it sort of like an example for other countries not to possibly to I mean communist it, or something yeah you know? they may have been trying to show a bit of show of power you know this was being just being watched by the Soviets they wanted to show off the American military show how scary they could be um, to kind of head off any chance of the Soviets thinking they could take them on you know they're they're showing off yeah. um, but unfortunately this this showing off doesn't work because this plan 
kind of fails pretty spectacularly. Uh, the US, despite having a vastly superior force, uh, both technologically and in sheer firepower, and despite the US government spending uh, roughly over $120 billion on this war, they, as many people are aware, fail and end up leaving in 1973. And then in 1975, South Vietnam fell after a full-scale invasion from the north. <laughs> so they failed, despite their huge uh, advantage. They failed and largely failed um, in fighting the Viet Cong, which is oh, interesting, so the fact that we were just talking about um, the Seminole and how they were able to fight them off. Yeah, And it's... You know, it's the same way because the Viet Cong used guerrilla tactics and guerrilla warfare, which is something okay. we've spoken about before. I talked about it quite at length when we had our episode on the ninjas. Um, Sun Tzu brings it up in his Art of War. It is a type of irregular warfare that is used throughout history when you're fighting against a superior force and is really effective. Um, clearly, because, you know, the yeah. United States, the most powerful country in the world at that time, lost and were unable to take over, fully take over um, South Vietnam or help South Vietnam establish its control uh, and defeat the North. And it is, yeah. it is such a disaster for them. So the main thing I wanted to look into for this is some of the guerrilla warfare tactics that the Viet Cong used, because they used some really dirty fighting tactics. One of the biggest things that the Viet Cong used was obviously traps. Um, so they filled the uh, Vietnamese jungles uh, with traps. And there's some really kind of gruesome ones. The most obvious one would be a spike pit, which you can kind of imagine is um, a bunch of sharpened bamboo stakes, um, which were known as punji sticks, uh, that they would dig, uh, you know, they'd dig a ditch, stab them into the bottom, um, and lay uh, a kind of mat over the top that could be easily broken but hard to spot. Yeah. Um, these sticks would also be quite often smeared with feces or urine or any other substance that would cause infection. Oh. So, you know, they, they don't just want to hurt, they want to possibly kill. And also making a soldier sick is almost easier than just killing them straight away because then it requires other soldiers to take them away. Yeah. It takes more people out of the battle. And then some even worse versions of it would have spikes facing down so that once your leg went in when you tried to pull it back out it would get jammed into other spikes and you would be stuck there oh. and it would disable the almost if you just think you know a unit of u.s soldiers walking through or trying to trek through this jungle and then one of them is stuck and isn't dead so you can't leave him i mean not that you would want to leave a body anyway but you would definitely want not want to leave your fellow soldier there yeah so you would have to spend hours carefully getting him out he would then get sick you might have to take him back really, really gruesome but yeah very effective yeah they uh the Viet Cong would also use snakes quite often um oh. they would sometimes apparently carry what's known as a bamboo pit viper um and they would place them inside their bags so that if uh, uh and they would leave their packs and kind of out so that if anyone tried to, you know, root around in their stuff, they would get bitten by this snake oh. and it would lead to their death. The snakes actually had a nickname called the three step snakes because that's how many steps you would make it before keeling over and dying. Shit. Which is pretty fucking that scary. Is fucking terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you wouldn't want to be going anywhere near uh, a Viet soldier's, um, a Viet Cong soldier's pack um, once you'd seen one of your buddies go down from a snake. So, yeah, really fucking scary and yeah using the terrain and using their understanding of nature around them to to fight off this foe yeah 
Um, another trap which I think is particularly scary is something called a cartridge trap. Okay. And I'll try and explain it. Um, if you if if I do a bad job of it, please look it up. But it's it's hard to explain without a <laughs> visual demonstration. I'll probably put something in the um, Instagram so you show you. I'm looking forward to it. But this. essentially, what it would be um, is you would uh, dig a small hole and you piece uh, put a piece of bamboo at the bottom of it with a nail sticking up out of it. Then you would place uh, a single round of ammunition resting very gently on top of the nail and then held up by some other pieces of wood just so it's sticking like that. And then you would cover it over. And then if a soldier walking through stepped on this small bit, they would push down on the bullet that would then push down on the nail, which would trigger the bullet to go off and it would fire up into the foot of the victim. Oh, my God. Taking out their foot. So that's like a claymore before claymore kind of thing yeah yeah sort of. but it's so interesting because it's not an explosive it is it's not designed to you know because an explosive yeah you are going to kill one person using it but it's almost a lot more efficient use of gunpowder and explosives because it just fires a single bullet up into someone's foot and that person is kind of taken out because they're going to be a liability to the soldiers around them they would probably have to call in a helicopter that could be doing something else to evac oh, them out yeah. so it's a really efficient use of it's a single round of ammunition and some bamboo and a nail you know it's really, you, really you do have to get very yeah yeah you do have to get quite lucky and they would place it on trails and stuff to increase the chances of someone stepping on it but still it's a it's really simple small little trap that could do a lot of damage yeah um, and then the final trap I'll, I'll mention, which I think is a really interesting because it has a kind of nickname called the Keepsake Lose Hand Trap. Oh, God. Which is a, which is a great name. <laughs> essentially, it is, uh, it's kind of, it, that's kind of a name for lots of different types of trap, but it's essentially an explosive that would be placed um, where uh, next to an item that US soldiers would pick up as a trophy. So the Viet Cong would see would would find an item yeah. and think this is something that a US soldier would want to pick up and keep and they would rig it with an explosive. Oh and one of the most goodness. common things they did with this was flags. So the US were big fans of when they took over a Viet Cong base, they would want to take down the flag and put up, you know, the star not the stars and bars. That's the that's the, that's the <laughs> southern one. But they would want to put up the American flag to show stripes. they'd won it. <laughs> stars and stripes, that's what it is. Um so they would so they would lay a trap. And so, you know, the soldier, they'd just taken over this base. They're feeling really good about themselves. One soldier whips out the flag and goes, right, we'll raise this, touches the Viet Cong flag, and an explosive goes off. Really? Because That's... they knew yeah. that would be something that they would want to do. That's so that intelligent. That That's trick. really clever and also very malicious it's, somehow. I mean, It's very smart. Chilling. And it, it kind of shows the kind of thinking of guerrilla warfare is that uh, a lot of it is retreating when necessary. You know, you pick your battles, you you fall back when it's necessary. They would abandon camps um, when they didn't think they were going to be able to hold out. But they before they abandoned them, they would rig the whole place up with traps. Yeah. So, you know, these US soldiers who, you know, think they've just won a great back battle, although they may have just, you know, shot a few rounds and then the Viet Cong decides to leave, then enter this camp as triumphant heroes <laughs> and then get all blown to bits, which is horrible. Because it's, it, but it's a very effective way of fighting. Yeah, and it also will send fear back through the ranks. You know, all of those traps. I mean, how many how many um, GIs would have had nightmares about? I don't want to go on another patrol, man. I'll never come back. Yeah, kind of thing. yeah. Terrible There's just so much out there. 
um, you know, getting hit by spikes or, or getting uh, or... attacked by a snake or a gunshot flying out of the ground. I mean, it would feel like hell. Yeah. And that's what I think what they wanted it to be like. They'd wanted the the US forces to just be terrified of move, moving through this place because it would also slow them down. You know, if they have to ch- meticulously check everywhere they walk, oh. every base they take over, it's just so many more hours that they can uh, spend regrouping and re-strategizing and moving around the enemy. Yeah. Um, wow. And actually, on that, one of the main ways they moved around the enemy was they made use of a tunnel network. So before the Vietnam War, um, the the thing that kind of kicked off is the, uh, the North Vietnamese government actually kicked out uh, the... French colonist government and in that, during that kind of war of independence, they built uh, a number of tunnels so that they could move through the jungle with ease and the Viet Cong used these and actually expanded them so they could then start moving their way through the jungle without being seen by US forces, without without setting off any of those traps they they set in and then they could move supplies and weapons and troops really easily they could even sleep down there out of harm's way so it was this great way of maneuvering around because something that comes up a lot in warfare is if you can maneuver that's a really important part of any uh, winning tactic your maneuverability is so important and that was a huge thing for them and these tunnels but what's possibly the most effective tactic they use, and I don't know if this really counts as a guerrilla warfare tactic, but it's certainly very useful. And what makes me kind of like the Viet Cong a little bit more is that they realized quite quickly that the uh, peasant villages would be crucial in their war against uh, the United States. Um, and actually winning over the peasantry would be a huge boon to them. Yeah, um, they, they could supply them and, and look after them and like send them false info and stuff like that, I'm guessing. Exactly. There was so much they could get out of it. Like you said, they could provide uh, food and supplies in a very basic sense. They could also uh, use villagers to hide and stash weapons. Yeah. Um, and then the villagers would work to make sure those stashes are protected. Um, they would also be a great source of new recruits. Of course. Um, because, you know, if they're looking after them and helping them and treating them kindly, these villagers will see uh, the Viet Cong as, you know, freedom fighters they won't see them as the enemy they'll see them as their brethren yeah um, and then the most useful thing is that the Viet Cong could hide in these villages in plain sight because the american soldiers would not be able to distinguish a Viet Cong soldier uh but between a Viet Cong soldier and a villager and that led to while that would either work in that they get away with it or it would fail in that the u.s soldiers would kind Kill of everyone. end up killing everyone but and that, that would then turn uh, you know, more over to the Viet Cong's cause it's very clever Exactly. So they really worked hard. They told all their soldiers, you know, don't steal from these villagers, don't destroy their land, uh, don't rape, don't pillage, don't kill. Um, And so they treated all these villagers, you know, vaguely selfishly to get something out of them. But they didn't want to destroy these people. Well, and so, you know, part, part of it might have been a war tactic, but part of it may have been they didn't want to harm who they considered their their people. Yeah, especially as they're communists, you know they're you know that they're that's all the about ideology, the commune. You know. Yeah, they're about they're yeah. literally about the commune. So that's not quite a, a guerrilla war tactic, but it was certainly very useful to the Viet Cong, and perhaps may have been one of the things that led the Viet Cong to kind of defeat one of the biggest military forces ever amassed, probably ever. Yeah. I can't imagine. I mean, I mean, it's one of the most recent wars. Um, uh, and it's one of the biggest military movements, I think, probably on the planet, certainly in terms of firepower. Um, you know, the US really went 
full whammy in there and and didn't couldn't compete with these guerrilla tactics yeah well it's fascinating how guerrilla warfare works and i i think we've really we've really bashed the u.s today but i think it's fair enough on this front we have chosen particularly bad times of their history but um yeah fascinating well i hope you enjoyed that as much as we did telling it and uh yeah. um yeah please uh tune in next time for another episode patrick what are we uh what are we going to next week so we will be jumping across to Africa um, for a second time this series to look at Shaka Zulu, um, the very famous uh, war leader, um, and how his demise came. Fascinating. So, yeah, well, cool tune in for that next time. Um, and as always, please, if you want to help support the podcast, uh, please tell a friend, uh, like us on our Instagram page, which is at Cloak and Dagger Podcast. Um, and obviously, yeah, just uh, like it, share it, leave a comment and uh, tell your grandparents because they'll probably be quite interested Um, and yeah uh, we'll see you guys next time yes see you next week